welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, uh, carrying on with our last episode looking at John Locke and the social contract theory, or basically, how do we as a group of people uh, work together to form a nation or a government or some kind of governing body. How does that actually happen? So uh, we're going to be looking at covenants and contracts and the issue of consent. And we're going to continue with where we were last time. So now the passage that I want to look at today is is quite relevant to our discussion. It is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. So let me go ahead and read that. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Okay, so the passage here in Deuteronomy is from God through Moses to the people of Israel. And God is providing warnings uh, to the people for breaking covenant. So he took them out of the land of Egypt. They are to be his people. He is to be their God. And he is going to give them the land of Canaan. And he is speaking to a particular generation, but he's speaking also about the future, about what's going to happen in the future when you father children and children's children. Okay. And what we see looking back through history is they didn't lose the land. These curses didn't happen right away. It took hundreds of years for the people of Israel to be removed from the land and to be scattered among the nations. So even though God is making an agreement with a particular generation, the generation that came out of the wilderness, these apply to future generations. Okay, it's a it's it's a covenant in that sense. So covenants are like I said in the last episode, they are based on a established relationship between two parties. There is some history between the parties, and the covenant also includes promises given on both sides, usually. It can be one-sided, and in the case of God's covenants with us, it usually is one-sided, where God is promising to provide. And actually, that is what happens with Abraham. Uh, earlier in Genesis, um, God makes all of the promises to Abraham, and he takes upon himself all of the curses for breaking 
the covenant. And that's the whole idea of covenant is that you make promises and then you invoke curse upon yourself if you don't fulfill those promises. And these promises are to be continual. It's not a contract that ends after the job is complete or the day is over. It's a a continual promise unless both parties re-covenant or the one who initiates the covenant re-covenants or initiates a newer covenant. So anyways, we see here in the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, promises are required and are made, expectations are given, and this is going to continue on for the next generation. So the current generation has an obligation to teach the next generation about the covenant because the next generation is going to be held to that standard. And if they don't obey what God has required, then the curses will fall upon them. All right? Now this is a this is a body politic. This is a nation state. Now of course it's unique in a certain sense between God and the people of Israel. But uh, God treated the Gentile nations in a very similar fashion. All right, so the Canaanites were removed from the land as well because of their sinful practices. And God had given them time to repent and to turn away from the wicked deeds, but they didn't do it. And so after the time of the Amorite was complete, this is what God told Abraham about 400 years later, once their sins were fulfilled or full, then they were removed from the land. Okay, so that is our passage of the day. And now we're going to look at that and how it applies to John Locke's social contract. Now, this is based on his work titled Two Treatises of Government. We looked at the first treatise uh, last time, and now we're really focusing on, on the second one. So a little bit of a refresher. So John Locke, uh, writing in the late 1600s, argued that government was founded upon a social contract and that every person starts out in a state of nature. Now, this state of nature is not meaning that everyone does whatever they want. It means that everyone is independently under the law of nature. Everyone is doing the things that nature, and he would then say God, requires of them. And they're doing that on their own. They don't need any help or coercion from anybody else, uh, not, not some kind of government or anything. But he says from this point of neutrality or, or state of nature, people form a contract where they give up some of their authority to the group, and in return, the group protects their person and property and liberty. Now, the problem that we ran into last time, and that I think is the main issue with Locke's argument, is the issue of children and parents, or what he would call paternal power. Because he would admit in his work that children are not born into this state of nature, although he would say that that's their goal. Their goal is to become free and to reach a state of nature, but they are under the authority and control, really, of the parents. And he would say parents are under obligation by the law of nature, 
to raise their children and to train them to enter into a state of nature or freedom. So God gave children to the care of their parents for their good. And the freedom is not given too early because if it were given too early, it would be not good for the recipient. So applying this to this idea of the state of nature, uh, Locke would say, well, this first generation, they, they came together and formed by uh, overt consent. They formed a nation, a body politic. But their children, if they want to have the same thing, they have to take it on the same terms that their ancestors did. And so the issue we see here is that they, the children, are not really giving the same kind of consent that the parents were able to give. I mean, the parents, they were in a state of nature. They were free. And then they willingly, on purpose, uh, came together and formed this group and gave up some of their own authority and power in doing so. But those children, they just kind of inherit it and they just have to receive it on the same terms that their parents did. But they also have to give consent. But what Locke fails to recognize there or fails to to point out is that this is not the same kind of consent um, that the parents got to enjoy. Anyways, Locke goes on to then talk about marriage as a contract and not a covenant so that the family should only stay together for the benefit of the children. And he makes a very interesting argument, very strange argument, that marriage does not even need to continue on after the children are cared for. In fact, here's what he says about that. He says, quote, Yet it would give one reason to inquire why this compact, he's talking about marriage, the contract of marriage, why this compact where procreation and education are secured. Okay, so they have the children are taken care of and they're educated and inheritance is taken care of for. He says, quote, may not be more determinable either by consent or at a certain time or upon certain conditions as well as any other voluntary compacts, there being no necessity in the nature of the thing nor to the ends of it that it should always be for life, end quote. Okay, so there, in, in, in not so many words, he's basically saying, There is no reason, there's no inherent reason in marriage why it should remain for life. If everything else is good, children are good, they've been raised, they've been educated, the inheritance is secure, they're, you know, basically the parents are empty nesters, there is no reason why they should not just be able to end the marriage by consent. There's There's nothing in the nature of marriage, he's basically saying that it should always be for life. This is quite an unbiblical position that he's proposing here. Uh, He's clearly not understanding what marriage is and what God designed it to be. God is the one who determines marriage, its purposes, and whether it goes for life or not. Uh, And John Locke here is clearly deviating from that with his focus on contract, not covenant. So then he goes on to talk about the issue of consent. And like I said, I, I mentioned it before, but he, he talks about how everyone got together and consented together to form a government. 
uh, and this was individual consent. Although, what's very strange here is he says that the majority have a right to act and to make decisions on behalf of the rest of the group. So, it's weird. He says, any number of men may do because it injures not the freedom of the rest. When any number of men have so consented to make one community or government, they are thereby presently incorporated and make one body politic, wherein the majority have a right to act and conclude the rest. So it's strange because he says, all right, everyone got together and agreed, but the rule is majority rules. And the question we need to ask is, well, where did that come from? Why does it have to be a majority? Why shouldn't it be everyone? has to consent to all the rules all the time, right? It shouldn't be a majority. Why does it have to be a majority vote? Where did that come from? He just seemed like he just made it up, okay? Why can't it be a two-thirds majority? Why does it have to be a simple majority? Now, Locke later on admits that there is nothing in history that indicates something like this happening, where everybody was in a state of nature, free and on their own, and then they just get together and they all consent to form a, a government, and that's where you get the first government. He, he admits that that is not the case, although he speculates. He refers to other ancient peoples, the Greeks and the, and the Romans, and he basically suggests that it probably happened and it disappeared very early on, but essentially it, it was true. It started and government is uh, by the consent of the people. Now we see more of the details in Locke's thinking when he goes back to the issue of fathers and sons, the issue of children and parents. Um, this is later on after he's presented his case that there was some kind of social contract that happened many, many, many years ago. But he says right, that, that those first fathers they passed away their natural liberty. So basically, they had liberty, they formed a body politic, but then they messed it up for the rest of us, and they bound themselves and their posterity to a, quote, perpetual subjection to the government, which they themselves submitted to, end quote. So basically, Locke is, is essentially blaming uh, the, our first you know, founding fathers, if you will, for uh, putting us under subjection to the government, which they submitted to. Now, he says here, he says, it is true that whatever engagements or promises anyone has made for himself, he is under the obligation of them. Okay, so he's like, that's fine. They can make, they can obligate themselves however they want to. But here's what he says next. He says, quote, but they cannot by any compact whatsoever bind their children or posterity. And he gives the example of a father and a son. And it's that's quite a strange thing for him to say. That, yeah, you can make an agreement upon uh, that's binding upon yourself, but you cannot make any agreement or promise that's binding upon the next generation. And quite frankly, that is not what we see in Scripture. I mean, all throughout Scripture, people are making promises and they're binding themselves and their future generations to the obligation. Um, just consider, <laughs> just even from popular culture, we see the example of in the Lord of the Rings, 
the, the one king, Isildur, who got the ring of power when he cut the ring from the Dark Lord's hand. What does he say? He says that he binds him and all who come after him to the ring. It's going to be a perpetual heirloom for his people. They're all bound to its fate. Okay. Uh, so was that appropriate? Was that just him being wish, having wishful thinking? Or can fathers obligate their children to a covenant? And I think that they can and that they do uh, all the time, really. And it's all throughout scripture. So this is, this is Locke's fatal flaw, I would say, of the issue of consent. Because from the Bible, we see that the government of family and church and state, they're covenantal. They are not contractual. They can be binding in perpetuity. They can be binding on the next generation. The commandment to honor your father and mother does not end with the death of your parents. All right? That's important to keep in mind. There are other fathers and mothers before them. And in fact, in the book of Proverbs, King Solomon says, Do not remove the ancient landmark that your fathers have set up. Why not remove the ancient landmark? Because you need to honor your fathers and mothers. That's why. And when we look at our own situation here in the United States, the covenant of the United States is binding upon us. In fact, I just want to read the opening sentences of the Constitution of the United States. Here's what it says. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So when our founding fathers wrote that document, they were not simply obligating themselves. It wasn't just applicable to that generation who could give open and positive consent. It was binding upon future generations. It was for their posterity. But Locke would say you can't do that. You can't make an obligation upon your posterity. If you try, that next generation has to give consent. Now, the, again, like I said, though, that's not the same kind of consent. It's one thing for people who are free to positively come to the table and say, I consent to give up my authority. But then when their children come of age and they've grown up in that nation following the rules they don't have they're not in the same position that their parents were they can't just up and leave and uh, make their own nation if they want to they are not in a state of nature so what consent are they giving i mean it's almost as if the first in the first case uh, you're free on your own unless you give positive consent to bind yourself but in the second generation you are bound unless you somehow give positive consent that you're free. Basically, you sell your belongings, pack up your things, and you move. But even if you move, what are you doing? You're joining another government. You're not free. There's no case in which, unless you're going to buy your own island and live as a hermit, there's no case in which you are free in the state of nature that your fathers once were. So you'll never be able to enjoy that state of nature that the original founding generation had. And so what kind of consent is that? So it's a different kind of consent. 
the one is explicit and the one is implicit. So apparently John Locke's first generation was able to give explicit consent. But the next generation only has to give implicit consent. There's two different standards there. You know, in that sense, silence is consent for those who come after. And even then, even in Locke's perfect society, not everyone has the right to vote. Children don't have the right to vote. And he would say, well, that's because they're not ready to do it. They're not ready to handle it. Well, I think a better argument is that that's because their parents represent them. They're under the covenant of their parents, family government. That's why they don't have the right to vote. And he never really answers the question as to why majority rule. That doesn't make any sense. You know, majority doesn't make it right. A majority is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. So he just assumes that when people form a nation, majority vote is the way that it needs to work. Okay, well, um, again, he does not uh, defend that argument. He just kind of assumes it. Now, ultimately, humans are born into covenants. We're born into the covenant with Adam. We're all sinners. We're born into the covenant with Noah. God's promise not to flood the earth and the sign of the rainbow that is given. We're born into our family covenant with parents and siblings. And we're born into the civil covenant with the nation that we live in. So unlike what Locke says, we are not born outside of a covenant. He sees only contracts and contracts are only based upon consent. But like I said, consent is very nebulous. And that's one of the reasons why we're having issues today with regard to consent because people are trying to base uh, sexual behavior merely upon the issue of consent, not covenant. It only works really in the covenant of marriage, which does contain consent, but it's different than the explicit consent that you need to give in a contract. A contract is very uh, short-term, self-focused, and immediate fulfillment. Covenants are long-term, and they're neighbor-focused, and they are based on promises, okay? Now, before I end today, I want to reiterate, John Locke, I don't think, was a secularist, all right? Because he does recognize that the law of nature is an eternal law that is applicable to all men. And he even says this, he says, the law of nature stands as an eternal rule to all men, legislators as well as others. The rules that they make for other men's actions must, as well as their own and other men's actions, be conformable to the law of nature, i.e. to the will of God, of which that is a declaration and the fundamental law of nature being the preservation of mankind. No human sanction can be good or valid against it. So he relates the law of nature to the will of God. And so he's not pulling these moral principles out of thin air. What he is doing, though, is he is deviating from Scripture. He's not following God's will in understanding how governments are formed. He is, I would say, being influenced by the Enlightenment thinking, rationalist thinking, and so we see what's going on here is it's kind of a hybrid. It's a hybrid of uh, of Christian, specifically Protestant thinking, Reformed thinking on civil government. And he's blending that with a secular Enlightenment thinking. But he is not really a secularist. He's really just borrowing and it's affecting his view of 
government in the social contract. So, and I would say that John Locke, although he was influential on our founding fathers, he was not completely influential because clearly our founding fathers formed a covenant, not a contract. And in fact, federalist, the word federal means covenant in the Latin, fetus, where we get the term fiduciary. And so our, our founding fathers were much more covenantal than they were social contract theory. So whatever influence Locke had, it wasn't as much as people think it was. So that is a good place to end. And I just hope that, you know, you think about these things uh, as we look at what government is. And this idea of social contract, whenever you hear that, the hairs in the back of your neck need to stand up. Because... That's not how God made the world. And as Christians, we need to emphasize covenant, not contract. And I think it'll do well for us as a nation and a culture if we get back to that idea of covenant. So with that, if you have any comments or questions or further topics you'd like to discuss, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Look for a Governed by God and message me there. You can also go to ericloopold.com and there's a form you can fill out to submit questions. And of course, if you want to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com and look for Governed by God. All the support is is, is helpful in keeping things running. Now, it's a, it's a non-profit organization here. I'm not here to, to make a profit. I'm just here to get these ideas out to more people. So thank you for tuning in. And until next time, take care and God bless.